Um, John had a little bit different purpose in his gospel than just presenting a historical account of the life of Jesus. He was um, set out to prove that he was indeed the Son of God, so he didn't give us the historical narrative that the other gospel writers did. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke recorded this story, and I will tell you from the, from the start that if you read all three accounts, you will find that there are some minor variations in those accounts, that they're not identical in every sense of the word. But I think that um, it's worth noting this morning that anytime you ask eyewitnesses to give an account of anything, they're going to give you the version that they saw and that they remember. Um, and so I know that there are some skeptics in our world today that, that look for these little, these little tiny variations in God's word and use that to say that, <clears throat> that they're, they're contradictions. They're not contradictions. In fact, I, I've been I'm getting weary reading this and hearing this, that people say um, the Bible was written by men, I, therefore I can't believe it. Every book that you hold in your hand was written by man. And we believe a whole lot of what they say. <laughs> um, the Bible was written by man, but it's the only book in our, in our universe that, that was inspired by God. That God breathed the words and men wrote the words. Now, the cool part about the Bible is that these men, although they were led by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God is inspired by them, they all brought their different personalities and styles to their writing. And in these eyewitness accounts, there's even a little bit of variation in what they saw. That doesn't discredit that. That doesn't make it a contradiction. In fact, most of what they consider to be a contradiction can be very easily resolved. When I see differences in the gospel accounts, there's some differences even in the resurrection accounts. Um, but I think all of them speak to the point that these men were eyewitnesses and they are not colluding with one another. Um, they're just sharing from their perspective as they are led by the Holy Spirit. So it gives authenticity to the Gospels as far as I'm concerned. And it doesn't matter any, any of these apparent variations or contradictions that people try to find in the Word of God. doesn't change the substance or the application of the stories at all so um don't let the differences if you read all three accounts today kind of throw you off but mark chapter 4 um i want to begin reading in verse 35 the bible says in the same day when the even was come he said unto them let us pass over unto the other side that would have been the other side of the sea of galilee and when they had sent away the multitude they took him even as uh even as he was in the ship and there were also with him other little ships. And there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship so that it was now full. And he, that's Jesus, was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. And they awake him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And he arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said unto them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly, and said one to another, What manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and preaching of his word. <clears throat> I'm going to give you the title and the main point of the whole message right from the start, and then you're just going to have to let me work towards that, all right? If I had to give you a title of the message, it would, be, it would be when desperate cries meet divine compassion. Desperate cries 
and divine compassion. I think that's the main point this morning of the message, but there are several other things that I think that we ought to make note of too and that I really believe are pertinent to that primary point. And the first thing that I want to just take note of is that um, it's important when you read Scripture to look at the context. When did it happen? You know, where did it happen? What's going on in the context? It's easy to take something out of context and make it say something that it's not. Um, but when you look at it in context, sometimes it just kind of drives the whole narrative. Um, Jesus had been ministering to a multitude of people. If you look at the context of this story, um, he, they, he had multitudes that were coming to him to hear him speak and to watch him perform miracles. And even in verse 36, it says that he sent away the multitude. And so understand that in, 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 in the middle of this ministry um, to a multitude of people, um, he, he paused in the evening, late in the evening. He just hit the pause button and said, let's go to the other side. Let's cross this sea and go to the other side. And he crossed the Sea of Galilee, if you look at the whole context, to find a demon-possessed man that the Bible says nobody could do anything with, that he had been chained up, locked up. They had tried to reform him. They'd done everything they knew to do for him, and they couldn't. nobody could tame him, the Bible says, and he lived among the tombs. Now, if you read one of the accounts, the Bible said there were two men. Whether there was one, whether there were two, maybe the one man was the most notable, and it was the one that most of the apostles referred to. Um, but Jesus went across the other side, and the Bible said that immediately when he got there, these men met him from the tombs and began to cry out to him. Um, desperation. And they came to Jesus with a legion of demons, and with a word Jesus spoke, and the demons were exercised from their lives, and the next thing you see, these men were sitting and clothed and in their right mind. And then Jesus and his disciples, right after he delivered them, the Bible says that they got right back in the boat and went right back across the Sea of Galilee where they came from. So here's the observation I want you to make just from the context alone. And that is that Jesus will pause a ministry to multitudes in order to meet the need of one desperate man. Now that's a big deal. Uh, especially when we, uh, especially when people in ministry are usually driven by the whole numbers thing. I can tell you the first word that always, the first question that people ask me, especially other pastors, how many of y'all running now? How many of you got in church now? I'm, uh, and we are, we are numbers-based. We think that ministry is to the multitude and that that is the most important. But I want you to understand, Jesus set a pattern for us in that even though there's a multitude of people gathered around him, he knows that there's another need on the other side of the sea, and he hits the pause button on the ministry to the multitude to go after that one that was desperately crying out for help that nobody else could meet that need. There are other illustrations of the Bible of when that occurred. Philip was in the middle of a revival preaching early in the book of Acts. And, and, and in the middle of that revival, while he was baptizing many, he, he was sent to a single man in the desert, uh, sitting in a chariot, reading from the prophet Isaiah, confused about what he was reading. And Philip ran up alongside him and ministered to him the Lord Jesus Christ and subsequently baptized him. And then the gospel went to another part of the world because Jesus hit the pause button in a ministry to the multitude and sent his disciple to minister to one man riding alone in a chariot because he knew the implications of that. The gospel would go to another part of the earth. Jesus will hit the pause button. The ministry to the multitude is important, but so is the ministry 
to one. Luke chapter 15, verse 4, Jesus told a parable. In fact, Luke chapter 15, he told three parables about things that were lost. And he said, what man of any of you, uh, if he has a hundred sheep and loses one of them, will leave the ninety and nine and go after that one that is lost until he finds it? Jesus will leave ninety-nine sheep that are safe in the fold and go after the one that isn't in the fold. In Luke chapter 15, verse 7, he said that that's just like the angels in heaven um, uh, rejoice, or the, the heaven rejoices, it doesn't say the angels. There's joy in heaven over one sinner that repents. That Jesus will leave the ninety and nine righteous uh, safely in the fold and run to rescue that one that is lost and doesn't know the way home. Now I'm quite sure that Jesus stays busy. In fact, I think I probably keep him pretty busy in my own personal life. I appreciate the passage of Scripture that Katrina read a while ago. He doesn't slumber or sleep. His hand's not shortened that it can't save. And, and even though I'm sure he stays busy, I can tell you this, Jesus has always been there for me when I needed him most. He has always been there with me when I needed him most. That he would leave the ministry of a multitude to cross a sea, uh, an ocean to minister in person to a demon-possessed maniac speaks volumes about the heart of Jesus. Across the sea in one night, back across the next day, he had fulfilled his purpose. By the way, that demon-possessed man wanted to be a missionary. Jesus said, just stay here and tell everybody what great things that have been done to you. Now, Mark made a little side note in the story that the other gospel writers didn't make. And it's found in the end of verse number 36. There were also other ships with him. Now, most, if you look at, most Bible scholars believe that Mark was probably a scribe, that he was a penman, and that he was sharing the life of Jesus from the perspective of the apostle Peter. That Peter was probably dictating what Mark wrote, that this is Peter's account. And Peter, who was a fisherman himself, made a note in his sharing of what happened that it was, just, it was not just one ship that was on the sea that night, but that there, there were other little ships with him. Now, we think of ships, we think aircraft carriers, we think battleships, we think Mayflower-type ships, we think a big boat um, with all the provisions you need in it, um, with the capacity of sailing across the Atlantic or the Pacific Ocean. The Mediterranean or the um, Sea of Galilee was not that big a body of water. It was a big body of water, but not as big uh, as our oceans are. And these ships that these men were in were very likely all fishing boats. Now, I don't know what size they were. I don't know if they looked anything like a modern-day shrimp boat. I don't know how big they were. Um, but they were, they were, Peter made a note that there were little ships that were with them. And I, I, that could mean that there were other little ships, just like the little ship that they were on, or that there were other smaller ships um, that are along with them. And, and that makes me make another observation from this text and that is that traveling with Jesus guarantees that storms will gather against you in this world. If you travel with Jesus, you can experience to run into some hardships along the way. Now, I can take you from the beginning of the Scripture to the end of the Scripture and give you a thousand different illustrations of this. But the Bible says that there is a prince in this world 
that is doing everything that he can do to stand in the way of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's been like that from the beginning, and it'll be like that until the very end. Satan knows that he has but a short time, and he is doing everything he can to hinder the ministry of the gospel um, by, by attacking the lives of those who would carry it. If you look at the, the, the wind that was raised up against Job, where that, that, that strong wind came and fell upon his house and destroyed his children, who do you think was behind that wind? Who was trying to tear apart the testimony of Job? Who was trying to destroy the testimony of Job? Um, in the Old Testament, God raised up, or God didn't raise him up. The, Satan raised up Pharaoh. The Bible does say that God hardened his heart. Um, but, but Pharaoh was raised up against the Israelites. Why was Pharaoh raised up against the Israelites? Because God had made a promise to Abraham that through the lineage of uh, through his seed, we just got through studying that, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Listen, Satan understood and knew that God would send his Messiah into the world through the lineage of Abraham. And his, uh, his intent to destroy Israel was an intent to stand in the way of the coming of the Messiah. He did the same thing when Jesus was born. When Herod caught wind that there was a new king in town, um, he demanded that all of the males from two years old and under be killed. What was that all about? That was Satan's attack against the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That was his um, intention to stand against the righteousness that God would send to the world in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And can I tell you that the devil's still railing against all righteousness in the world today. If you're going to take a stand for Jesus, if you're going to be an ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're going to travel with Jesus, you can expect that storms in this world are going to gather themselves against you. Uh, I would say this, the Apostle Paul probably had a fairly easy life before he came to Jesus. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He had money. He had prestige. Um, he was looked up to in Israel. And the Apostle Paul, when he came to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, became one of the most hated men on the face of the earth. If you look at 2 Corinthians, I believe it's chapter 11, he gave a list of the things that he endured, including being snake-bitten and shipwrecked and drank poison and beaten and stoned and, and uh, in perils. Everywhere that he went, his life was full of storms. Because he's traveling with Jesus now. When you travel with Jesus, you make yourself an enemy of Satan. And you make yourself an enemy of a world that's following him. The Apostle Paul kind of gave a list of the things. He said, you know what I suffered in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He said, you know all the things that I suffered at Iconium and other places. The persecutions, the afflictions, everything that I endured there. And then in verse 12, he said, but you need to know this. All that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Everybody that lives for Jesus is going to face some storms. That don't mean he's against us. It just means that we're living in a world that is against us. It means that we have an enemy who is against us because we have chosen to follow Christ and we are his ambassadors in the world. Now, another observation along that same line. If you travel with Jesus, you can expect some storms in your life. But here's another observation. Even those that are not with Jesus can benefit from the intercessions of those who are. Now, I don't know anything about them people in the mother boats, all right? Nothing. It'd be pure speculation for me to say that I knew anything about them. We know that there was a multitude with Jesus, and he sent them away. Maybe some of them didn't want to be sent away. Maybe some of them, I mean, let's be honest, there's a lot of folks following Jesus that just wanted 
um, to eat the meals that he was providing and see the miracles that he was performing. That's, there a lot of people just followed Jesus for that reason. They left him when he laid down some things that was too hard for them to comprehend or understand or embrace. They walked away from him. A lot of people just followed him because the crowd was. I don't know why these other little boats went with him. They may not have known anything about Jesus other than, hey, we've seen him do some pretty phenomenal things. Let's go see what he does on the other side. I believe the disciples were in the boat with him. I believe those that were closest to him were in the boat with him. But there were a lot of other little ships with them. And, and those people that were in those other ships were in the same storm, right? I mean, they in the same storm. And if their ship was littler than the ship Jesus was in, it was worse for them than it was those in the, in the ship with Jesus. And the ones in the ship with Jesus at least had the benefit of knowing that, hey, the one that we believe is the Messiah, the one that we believe is the Savior of the world is here with us. The people in those other boats may have felt even more alone. In fact, I, 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 let me just say it like this. We've all had those times in our life when we either didn't know Jesus at all or we felt like we were a long ways off from him. Have you had those times in your life? Listen, there was a time in my life I didn't know Jesus. But I can tell you I benefited from the prayers of people who, do knew, who, who did know Jesus. There were times in my life that I walked past my mom and dad's bedroom when I was living in a state of drunkenness and sinful rebellion against God, and I'd walk past a cracked open door to my mom and dad's bedroom with a nightlight glowing and, and, and trying to avoid an altercation with my dad. And I would look through that room and see them kneeling down beside their bed and know that they were interceding on my behalf. First seven years of our marriage, I put my wife through hell the way that I lived my life. But I knew that my mom and dad, along with my wife, were praying for my conversion. I didn't know Jesus. I didn't know how to intercede for myself. I was not interceding for myself. But even those that are not with Jesus can benefit from the intercessions of others. There are some times in my life that I felt a long ways away from Jesus. There are some times in my life when I didn't know how to pray. Or what to pray. But there are other folks that were praying for me that made a difference in my life. I'm thankful that even when I didn't know him, somebody did and was praying. I'm thankful that even when I felt far from him, separated in, 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 in some ways by my own rebellions, but there were those who were not that were interceding for me. Max Lucado made this statement, you are never more like Jesus than when you pray for others. The Bible says that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. That's whether we're with him or not, whether we're close to him or far away, he's interceding for us. He was interceding for Peter the night that Peter betrayed him. He said, when you're converted, he said, I'm going to pray for you that your faith fail not. And when you're converted, you can go strengthen your brother. By the way, let me just add this side note. <clears throat> in some of the hardest times in my life, when I had my own personal struggles that I was dealing with, and, I, and I'll just be very transparent with you. I went through a season... I've shared it with you guys before. I don't mean to make a bigger deal of it than I need to, but I went through a season of, of significant anxiety to the point of having panic attacks, feeling like I couldn't breathe at night and my heart racing. 
And I didn't know what that was like until that hit me. I'd heard other people talk about it my whole life, and I'd always thought, just shake it off. Just move on. I don't know why you let stuff lie. But it got in my head to the point that I thought, there ain't no way I can live like this. Now, I'd come to church and fake it till I make it. But I'd go home and be a miserable mess. My wife can tell you, I'd get up in the middle of the night and pace the floor. I'd get up in the middle of the night and walk over here to this building. And I'm telling you, there's some days that I didn't know what to pray for or how to pray. I was at the point, I was saying, Lord, if this is how it's going to be, I just, I just need to go. Now, it's not suicidal in my thought processes, but I can see how people get there. Because that's where I was. But I realized one day, I was walking around the yard, feeling sorry for myself. And not understanding why I was going through that season of anxiety. I didn't even know what I was anxious about. It was a tormenting spirit. And walking around that yard that day, I thought about Zeus. Because at that particular time, he had a bowel obstruction. He hadn't been to the bathroom in, in several days. I'm not trying to be graphic. But he had a bad situation. And the doctors had said, if, if, he, if something doesn't change very quickly... Um, he's going to have to have some surgical intervention. In my mind, immediately walking around the yard feeling sorry for myself, I thought, my Lord, here I am feeling sorry for myself and my grandson's facing something that I would not wish on my worst enemy. And so I began to pray for him walking around the yard. And then some other folks came to my mind that had suffered from the same thing that I was experiencing for a lot longer than I had and to a degree that I never had. And I began to pray for them. And can I tell you, when you begin to intercede for others, a peace can come over you because you're praying for them. Now these disciples felt like they were in trouble. I said they felt like they were in trouble. They were in distress. And Jesus was getting some good rest. And can I tell you this? Jesus ain't never been in distress. Never. He ain't never got up off the throne and paced around in heaven wondering what he was going to do or how he was going to do it. But these disciples were at the end of their rope. They felt like they were in trouble. But here's an observation. Jesus has never been in a storm that was capable of overthrowing his sovereign purpose. Listen, he knew where they were going. And you've heard me say this before. I've closed some sermons with it. Jesus started this journey before they got to the storm by saying, let's go to the other side. Why? Because there's a man on the other side that needs me. Now, that is obvious to me. That's the only reason he went to the other side. Because after he had done what he needed to do for the demon-possessed man, he went right back where he came from. That was a, a one-purpose journey. But Jesus knew that when they set sail that night, that evening, at dark, that they were going to cross the ocean and meet a man that had a need. He was going to meet that need and then go right back to the ministry to the multitude. 
Jesus' purpose was to set free a demon-possessed man, and he fulfilled that purpose and went right back across the ocean. So listen to me. Uh, he knew where he was going. He knew why he was going there, and he understood we're going to the other side. It doesn't matter what kind of storm comes our way. And can I tell you, as you trust the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation, you're going to the other side. It doesn't matter what storm the enemy brings your way. You're going home. You're going across sweet Beulah land. We might have to walk through hell to get there but we're going to get there because Jesus promised that we would ain't no storm in our life ever been capable of over, overthrowing his sovereign purpose you've made it through a hundred percent of them Colossians chapter 2 verse 15 talks about what Jesus did. It says that he spoiled principalities and powers and made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. You know how many times Satan's been in trouble like that? <laughs> Every time he thought he had Jesus and his plan and his purpose against the rope, Jesus come out on the other side better than he went in. Gaining more followers than he did before it happened. Listen, you, thought, you don't think G, the, the enemy thought he won a battle at Calvary that day? Three days later, he lost the war. Every time you and I walk through a trial with our faith in Jesus intact, Jesus has spoiled the purpose of the enemy and triumphed over him in it, in our life. They felt like they were in trouble, but they also felt like Jesus didn't care. You look at how they, look at how they finally went to him in verse 38. Master, do you not care that we're perishing? Now, I'm, I'm, I, I feel like at this point in time, in that, in that storm, they had very little faith that anything was... When they came to Jesus, they came to Him with, with what sounded like more of an accusation than it did a cry of faith. And if you look at the, if you look at the accounts, Jesus knew that their faith was weak. He knew that. If, if you look at Matthew's account, he said they had little faith. Oh, ye of little faith. That was what Matthew said that Jesus said. In, in Mark's account, he said, how is it that you have no faith? And if you look in Luke's account, Jesus said, where is your faith? A little faith? No faith? Where is your faith? My fifth observations might shake a little bit of your theology and make you even a little mad with me for a minute, but if you'll hang, if you'll hang in there. The deficiency of our faith does not diminish the power of Jesus over any storm in our life. Now, I'm not going to call his name because I don't really believe he's a heretic. <laughs> but I've watched a sermon a couple of times that people have posted online. 
of a fellow who's making a big deal about what Jesus can't do. Now, if I'm going to tell you what Jesus can't do, it's going to be limited to pretty much one thing. He can't lie. And that's, and, and that's, and that's more better, that's, that's more better said. <laughs> that's more better said he won't. Because he would violate his own nature and character by doing so. I don't have a list of things Jesus can't do. But this, this popular television preacher says that Jesus can't do some things because we won't believe. Now, to be fair to him, Matthew chapter 13, verse 58, I'll put them up there for you. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not afraid to put these up. Jesus in his own hometown among his own people. The Bible says he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. He did not. It didn't say he cannot. It says he did not. But, Mark chapter 6, verse 5, says that he could not. Let me, let me caution you about something. We don't, we don't need to build our theology on one verse of Scripture. Because the things that God meant for us to know and understand are spelled out in great detail in His Word. We don't have to build theology on isolated passages of Scripture that we have a hard time interpreting. The things that He wants us to know have been very clearly articulated in His Word, not just once or twice, but over and over and over again. Let me, just, let me just say it like this. There's no human being on the face of the earth that has any ability to limit the power of God. Period. If you or I could limit the power of the Almighty, then would that not make us more mighty than Him? We don't have any ability to limit the power, the power of God. And, and, and I want you to hear me out now. We should believe. We, we, we ought to believe. He wants us to believe. But our faithlessness does not limit His faithfulness. You hear me? I know what James says. James chapter 6 Verses 8, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him, let him ask of God that gives to men liberally. Let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. Um, it, whoever asks in faith wavering um, is unstable. and don't, don't, That man's not going to receive anything of the Lord. Sure, the Lord wants us to stand fast in our faith. Absolutely, he wants us to believe. But I can show you a hundred different examples in the Bible where people did not believe and God moved anyway in this story jesus said the the men that were writing this event said that jesus said you don't have any faith you have a little bit of faith where in the world is your faith you don't have it but you're asking do i care let me show you that i care he stood on the bow of the boat and said peace be still and the sea and the storm stopped they didn't limit his power by their lack of faith. 
Because the deficiency of our faith cannot diminish the power of Jesus over any storm that we have. Which brings me to the sixth observation. Sometimes these storms in our life are allowed just so he can showcase his own sovereignty. Just so he can reveal to us that he's in control. Um, what manner of man is this? They asked the question after Jesus had stood up. What, what, listen, they had, these guys had been with Jesus. They'd seen some things that he'd done. They knew what he had spoken. But now he's speaking with authority over the wind and the waves. And they look at him and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa. What manner of man is this? And now all of a sudden they had a whole new revelation of who Jesus was and what he was capable of. And now all of a sudden their, their, their fear of him, their reverence of him intensified to a whole other level. They're growing in their understanding of who Jesus is and what he's capable of. There's no other man like Jesus. Now, we need our faith to grow. because let's, let's face it, sometimes we don't have any faith. And, and, and to be honest with you, sometimes we've got faith for, with some things, but we don't have any faith with other things. Lord, I, I'll trust you with my finances, but I can't trust you with, with my child. I'll trust you with this, but I don't know that I can trust you with that. And we go through these seasons of our life where you can look at your life and say, you don't have any faith in that area, or you have a little bit of faith in that area, or where's your faith in that area? I trust him for salvation, but I ain't sure I can trust him for my daily bread. And we have deficiencies of faith all over our life in different areas. And we need for our faith to grow. And sometimes the only way, in fact, I would, I would say the Scripture says that there's always the only way for our faith to grow is for it to be tested and tried. By storms, by struggles. That's the only way it grows. That's the exercise of our faith. That's us looking beyond what we can see and just trusting what He can do. But, but sometimes we, don't, we, can't, we have a hard time trusting that. We have a hard time believing that. And so, and so He allows the storms, and even in spite of our lack of faith, He moves on our behalf, and we go through the other side, and we look back and say, what manner of man is this? Even when I had no faith, even when I lacked faith, even when my faith was small, even when I wavered in my faith, he still sovereignly intervened, brought me through. Faith has to be tried and proven over and over again for it to grow. And he's going to do that. He's going to do that for us. Which brings me to the last point. Even though their cry for help sounded more like, a, more like an accusation than it did a cry for help, what Jesus heard was desperation. They had no other effort, no other idea, no other person that they could turn to. The Bible said the boat was full. It's full. And it's still storming. And I can imagine, I don't know how long the storm lasted. Can you imagine them bailing water? 
them doing everything they could, and, and, and the waves are beating the ship, and the skies are emptying, and it's still, they couldn't stay up. They couldn't keep up. And, and, and now the ship is full. There's nothing else they can do. They don't have any other ideas. They don't have anywhere else they can turn. So they turn to Jesus. In a cry of desperation, do you not care? While you sleep, we perish. I was thinking about this this morning as I was getting ready for church. Can you imagine how dark it must have been out there on that ocean? I mean, it was at night. The Bible tells us they left at sundown. They in the middle of the ocean at night. Now, I'm, I'm, I, 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 I will freely admit to you that I'm using some sanctified imagination. They didn't have flashlights back then. They wasn't illuminating the darkness with a generator. If they carried a candle or a lantern or a torch on that boat, what kind of success do you th think they might have had keeping it burning? They ain't on the Titanic, they on a fishing boat. So I can imagine you in this pitch black night with a storm raging. And, and maybe the only glimpse that you get of Jesus' face comes from a flash of lightning. Don't you care? I was reminded that when I was thinking about it this morning, the hymn writer said, No night is so dark that I cannot see. His blessings still follow me there. Now, they may have tried not to wake him up, but, but listen, the time for courtesy was over. They may, they may have tried to let him get some rest, because after all, he wasn't a human body. He got himself away on several occasions, so that he could rest. But the time for courtesy was over. The boat's full. Jehoshaphat said, we're looking at an enemy that's bigger than anything that we'll ever see in our lifetime. We don't have any power or might to stand against them. And we don't know what else to do. So Lord, our eyes are upon you. Jesus' disciples in that boat that night said, this enemy is bigger than we are. This storm is more fierce than we can handle. We don't have any power, we don't have any might, but our eyes are upon you. I think those words spilled out without a filter. Master, don't you care that we're perishing? No restraint. They didn't even know what he could do, but they wanted him to do something. I believe it was a cry of desperation. I visited a place last Thursday that 10 years ago felt like a sinking ship to me and you've heard me talk about it before but it was a situation that I had absolutely no control over
in a stairwell at Savannah Memorial Hospital. I got on my face before God and said, I can't lose my daughter, and she can't lose her son. Now I've taken care of Sarah her whole life, and I'll do it till the day that I die. I tell the boys all the time, I don't love her more. I promise I don't. I just love her different, and I couldn't help. And when Cindy and I and Wade and Jana went back to the hotel room that night, we thought, okay, we're good. We got her here. It's good. They're going to get her to 34 weeks, strengthen the baby's lungs. We're going to be here for a little while, but that's all right. She's safe. And we walked into the hospital the next morning, and they said, she's going to die, and the baby's going to die if we don't take the baby now. Now, I don't know what excuse I used. I just knew that in that moment in time, I was as weak as I'd ever felt in my whole life. I didn't feel like I could be strong for Sarah. I didn't feel like I could be strong for Cindy. I didn't feel like I had anything left. And yeah, I was angry. I mean, we've been looking forward to this for 30 weeks. And I had every. Everything in my mind said this is going to end in a funeral and I can't do that. And I went back to that stairwell this Thursday. That, by the way, don't very many people use stairwells. And I'm thankful that they don't because that stairwell became a sanctuary for me that day where I just cried out to God in desperation and said, I can't do this. She can't do this. We can't do this. Have mercy. And when they rolled Zace past, he looked like a skinned squirrel. I'm sorry, but that's what he looked like. That's what. I, and my heart sunk again. I'm like, there's no way. A half a five-pound bag of sugar. My thumb looked like it was as big as his head. And I thought, man... Sarah's safe. Thank God for that. But what am I going to do when she loses this baby? What are we going to do? Oh, ye of little faith. Yep, that was me. Oh, ye of no faith. Yeah, that was me. Oh, ye, where is your faith? I didn't have it. But I can tell you this, from personal experience, the divine compassion of Christ hears the desperate plea of those people who call out to Him. Whether they got faith or not, He hears it. Miss Jeanette said, Amen. I remember Donnie laying his head on her chest when she was on that ventilator. And crying out for God to do something that the doctors couldn't do. He did. When we're hanging by a thread. Sometimes that's the only. Time that we'll reach the hem of his garment. When we reach that point of 
I've done all I know to do. I've gone everywhere I know to go. I've, I've said everything I know to say. I've tried to manipulate and move and, and fix it, and it just ain't. Which is right where he wants us to be. Not dependent on ourselves, but trusting him fully. And it might not look like faith to others. But I think it's exactly the kind of faith that Jesus is looking for, that childlike faith that I ain't got a clue. I ain't got nowhere else to turn. He knows when we've exhausted our efforts. He knows when we've reached the end of our rope. I told you all about my daddy's prayer a week before I got, before the Lord arrested my attention, literally, spiritually. My daddy said for the first time in his life, he knelt by our bed and said, God, I don't know what else to do for him or to him. I've pleaded. I've, I've bargained. I've offered to give him this and to do that. And he's hell-bent on walking the way that he's walking. And my daddy said for the first time in his whole life, he, he, he knelt down beside his bed and said, God, I don't care if he works on garbage trucks the rest of his life. I just want him to be saved. Within a week, the Lord had my, Sometimes the Lord wants you to reach that place where you quit trying to fix it. And you just run to him in desperation. Because that's the simplest, most sincere form of faith, I believe. It might not look big, but that's all you got left. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 tells us that without faith it's impossible to please God for he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him, desperately. That's faith. And the Bible is full of examples of desperate people who, who cried out and the Lord delivered. Exodus chapter 2, verse 23 and 24. After 430 years of bondage, they cried out. And the Bible said their cry came up to God and he heard them and delivered them. Judges chapter 3, verse 9 is the most often repeated passage in the book of Judges. They got themselves in trouble by their disobedience. They got in bondage because of their disobedience. They cried unto the Lord and God raised up a deliverer. Jonah was walking in rebellion against God. He put himself there. In Jonah chapter 2, he cried by reason of his affliction, and the Lord heard me, and out of the belly of hell, he felt like he was perishing. I cried, and you heard. The seventh verse says that he had compassion. His soul fainted when he remembered the Lord. His prayer came into the temple, and God moved on his behalf. Sent a whale. That became his deliverance. Psalm 107 verse 6. Is repeated four times. In Psalm 107. They cried unto the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them out of their distresses. Psalm chapter 34 verse 17 and 18. The righteous cry and the Lord heareth. And delivereth them out of all their troubles. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart. And saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Even if you got yourself in that place, all he's looking for is that cry of desperation. Get me out of here. 
Matthew chapter 14, verse 30, Peter had been walking on water. And then he took a look up at the wind around him and was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. You know, sometimes that's all it takes. You ain't got to have a long, drawn-out, fancy, articulated prayer. Peter said, Lord, save me. The next thing he found was a hand reaching down. He asked him, why did you, why did you doubt? Why did, why did you lose sight? Matthew chapter 15, verse 22. A woman came to Jesus who had a, a, a daughter that was demon-possessed, grievously vexed with a devil. The disciples tried to send her away. They, they, and Jesus even answered at one point because she was crying out. He said that he is sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And you know what she answered him? I understand that. But even the dogs get to eat the crumbs that fall from the rich man's table. And you know what Jesus said? You're right. And I hadn't seen any faith like that in a while. And her daughter was healed from that moment. What, what brought about that healing? She cried unto him, have mercy on me. Matthew chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Two blind men that the crowd, they cried out, have mercy. Heal us, Lord. They told them to hush. They said, they, they tried to quieten them down. The 31st verse said, they cried even more. They cried louder. They cried longer. Lord, have mercy on us. Mark chapter 9, verse 24. A man came to Jesus whose child was de demonically possessed. And, and even when they were bringing the child to Jesus, he convulsed. He went into a full-blown convulsion foaming at his mouth. And the father said, the, the spirit has tried many times to kill him, tried to throw him in the fire. And Jesus said, if you believe, anything is possible to those who believe. And that man cried out with tears and said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I believe that he is. Do you? Sometimes I have trouble believing that he will. And Jesus healed him. Why? Because he cried in desperation. I can tell you something. This church is full of examples. Every person in this church today could testify of a time that they cried out in desperation. And what they met was a divine compassion. And, and, and I would say sometimes it wasn't necessarily that the storm immediately went away. Sometimes it's just that he brought peace to my soul or your soul in the middle of the storm. We've, we've cried out because of sickness. We've cried out because of personal failures that threaten to wreck our lives. We've cried out because we had dug a hole for ourselves financially. Maybe we had lost a job or we were head over heels and didn't know how we could get. We cried out in desperation and doors began to open. 
I think all of us had that experience when we were saved. Lord, I can't do this. I can't save myself. I can say this. Every time I've ever cried out to him, what he hadn't delivered me from, he has seen me through. Now, I love them instantaneous deliverances. Sometimes I got some lessons to learn before he draws me out, before he sees me through. And the Bible tells me that he's doing all those things for our good and for his glory. And I trust him for that. The longer I live, the more I trust him for that. And so I just I want to just I want I want you to understand this morning. And sometimes it may look like and feel like Jesus is asleep in the boat. And that we're walking through hell all by ourselves. When the reality might just be that he's waiting for us to give up. And cry out. That he's waiting for us to exhaust all of our efforts and ideas and abandon our perceived strengths and abilities and just trust him completely. And, I, and I'll just say, as our, as our singers are coming, the most important thing you will ever do in your life is trust Jesus. And I don't care what you're talking about. If you're talking about for salvation, most important thing you can do, trust Jesus. If you've got sickness in your life, there may be some other things you need to do, but the most important thing you can do is trust Jesus. If you've got a failure that you want to be delivered from, if you've made a mess out of your life, out of your relationship, there may be some things that need to change in your life, but the first thing you need to do and the most important thing that you can do is trust Jesus. Desperate cries always meet divine compassion. I believe that. It's the purest, simplest form of faith that there is. Let's stand together. Lord, I, I'm grateful. I know that today is a bit of a celebration for me and my family. Just one storm among many is what it amounts to now, but we're going to rejoice in it. There may be some folks here this morning that are in the midst of their own kind of storm. and It may be sickness or it may be a marriage that's in shambles or it may be a failure that's come to light. I don't know what the storm might be. Maybe there's some folks in here like me a few years ago dealing with anxiety and depression that I did not know how to handle. I memorized... Isaiah 26, 3. That just promised me that you will keep in perfect peace all whose minds are stayed upon you. Because they trust in you. And I want to tell you, Lord, I know it was an effort for me to focus my heart and my mind upon you. But it, it was what I needed and it was those cries of desperation that brought me out of that place. And I'm so grateful for that. I don't know what kind of storms are in this building. But I know that they're none bigger than you. 
They're way over our head, but they're way under your feet. And maybe there just needs to be some cries of desperation. A wayward loved one, a child that's lost. Whatever the need is today. I pray they would know that a desperate cry of faith will meet a divine compassion and faithfulness. Hear our cries today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the